Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, it is your goodness that leads us home. And we pray that in a time of questions, you would use these questions of one of the great teachers of Scripture to take us beyond questions to the home where answers are to be found. Amen. Do you please sit? I find myself intrigued this week. I cannot remember a time when the media have had so many questions to put to faith or have regarded God as being such an issue in a great disaster. And they're perfectly proper questions too, the ones that we are being asked. What do we say? about an earthquake like the one that brought hell to Haiti? Is it an act of God? Is it an event in nature that God did not prevent? Is it an event in nature that God could not prevent? Or is it something with no character at all to it? Well, we would not trust anyone ourselves who came to us with glib answers we have to confess. We simply don't know. And neither could the teacher say he knew. Please turn to Ecclesiastes and to page 669. This is, as as Mark says, the second. Don't be slightly put off if you realize that uh, there are uh, 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes. It doesn't mean that there are 12 sermons. We won't do all of the chapters The book is bookended by a very little bit uh, at the beginning, telling us uh, who this is, uh, and rather more at the end. Alex said something about that last week. I'll say something a little later myself. But in the middle is this great wodge of teaching from this character called the teacher, who doesn't have the answers. And that is, to some extent, the point of Ecclesiastes. The teacher, describing life on earth, life under the sun, as he puts it, is fully aware of the limitations of knowledge and effort and of the frustration that those limitations bring. And even the attempt to break out of those frustrations only seems to lead to more frustration. Work and wisdom, wine and wealth... There's no escape, it seems, from being bound to this earth so that the answers all seem as far away, as up there, as ever they did. And if you were here last week, you may recognize some of what will follow tonight. Some of the teacher's attempts occur again in our own reading, his attempts to understand. And like a corkscrew winding along, The teacher takes some of the previous things and gives them new twists, but the basic realities remain on the same course. And so in chapter 2, from where we started in verse 17 through to verse 23, 
We can summarize it as saying that achieving is meaningless because it doesn't go anywhere. You can work. Some of you, after New Year's breaks, have gone back to work. Some of you are back at college. You can work. Good. But you can't take it with you. And you'll only end up leaving it behind, all your wealth, to people whose worth you cannot know. Verses 18 and 19. I must leave them to the one who comes after me, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Even here, we find that we're puzzled by what we're supposed to do with some of this. Look, for example, at verse 21. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do we do with that? Is it what it appears to be, a claim that inheritance is straightforwardly without meaning? Or does it mean because there are these bookends in the book of Ecclesiastes that raise questions over what's been in the middle? Does it mean because it's in this library of books that we call Holy Scripture that we're supposed to see a kind of nod and a wink so that it really means if you take on inheritance on its own as it appears to be, then of course it appears to be meaningless, but that very factor is an invitation to look beyond to something else, to somewhere else. And what might that something, where may may that somewhere else be? Well, we get some hint from a phrase in the next section in, uh, where is it, verse 24. The end of that verse says, this too, I see, is from the hand of God. Inheritance could be meaningless, but if it's received as being from the hand of God, a God with a certain character, then there may be the glimmer of an answer. Alex last week pointed us to the end of the book, to one of these bookends that frames everything that goes on in the middle, to the command to fear God and keep his commandments. If God is personal, if God is worth fearing, if God has a holy character such that he can issue commandments, if God is like that, then perhaps it is possible to rescue inheritance or or anything else from meaninglessness and give it meaning again. And that's a very powerful claim into the culture that we are becoming. We bow down at the altar of a certain equality, equality of opportunity, we say. But what is that? It is the opportunity to make the best of the gifts and abilities that God has given you. Well, that must be good, mustn't it? It sounds great. But at the end of it, what is the result? Well, why? Only that you and you alone are responsible for what has been achieved. Jolly good for you. And the teacher is sceptical. Okay, you've achieved all that, but so what? If you can remember, though, even in the pride of achieving, that you had nothing that you didn't receive first from the hand of God, as in verse 24 
then there is some hope you can find meaning within his purposes. And so these later verses, 24 to 28, we might head differently. If 17 to 23 can be headed, achieving is meaningless, then 24 to 28 might be headed, receiving can be meaningful. Only can be, though. There's plenty of puzzle to life here as well. You can eat and drink and work, according to verse 24, and you can take those short-term satisfactions of seizing the day, and that's all well and good. And there can be a real receiving of these things from God's hand. It might just be the, the simple act of giving thanks before a meal. <clears throat> but don't hope for too much. The entire process in the longer term is put in question by another use of that word in verse 28. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. As some of you uh, know, and thank you for praying, those who have, um, I've been away <clears throat> uh, with Simon Elphick and a couple of others to uh, Zermatt in Switzerland, where I had hard slogging duty in ministry uh, in the uh, English chaplaincy that's there. Every now and again, I was allowed out to ski. Um, but obviously, the real emphasis fell on the, 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 the deep effort involved. Well, Zermatt just happens to be one of the glitzier resorts in Switzerland. And I met all kinds of people who had worked very hard and they had earned their wealth. They were used to good things to eat and drink. They were used to sport in which to find satisfaction. But they were different among themselves. There were puzzles. Some of the behaviors I witnessed, some of the people I met, had all that life about them, but what they had in life, they spoke of with gratitude and a sense of humility. And I'm not talking about the Christians only. But others wanted to claim quite clearly that it's all about me. And they were happy to squander what they'd been given on lives of excess and indulgence. Well, I left them to Simon. But it's so with the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Even the best wisdom that his culture could offer, and he was one of the teachers in this culture. Some, for some, it led to gratitude and a sense of receiving from the hand of God, but for others it just left, led to more ignorance. And in truth, no one was better off than the other. The problem of this issue of work at the end of chapter 2 and inheritance, and indeed all the other problems we meet, is the problem of time. We cannot know what will happen in our future, either to build further on what we've built ourselves or to see it torn down. The meaninglessness lives in the very unknowability of the future. And in a, a group like this, there will be some who are facing terrible anxieties about the future of health or job or work, and we simply don't know. And no amount of wisdom, no amount of wealth is helping us right now. And so here comes the famous passage in chapter 3. Some of us who are older will hear it in a folksy 1960s version 
which completely missed the point. Chapter 3 in verses 1 to 8, there is order and there is rhythm. But the problem is none of us knows where we are in that cycle. I think I've mentioned this chap before, a guy called Sam Dickinson. A, a, a friend of ours just got his place at university, uh, looking forward to a terrific career. A couple of days before Christmas in a car crash, uh, broke his uh, vertebrae very close to the top has been in the spinal injuries unit in Glasgow Hospital now for a while and is just getting movement back into some parts of his body. None of us knows where we are. Only that God, according to Ecclesiastes, is the maker of eternity in our hearts. I would be no sort of pastor would walk up to Sam's bed right now and say to him, well, the Bible says that all things work together for good for those who love God, Sam. In Haiti, there has been a history, a long history of being under the thumb of others. The last Republican administration in the States blocked $500 million of international aid to Haiti not long ago. The last democratic administration there uh, first supported and then spurned the elected president. There is a time to remember that history, but there is also a time to forget it and to know that in less than a minute an earthquake took place that will probably cost 50,000 lives at least. And in the course of that history, nobody knew which bit would matter when. And in some ways, although this sounds terribly bleak, I find it hugely consoling to find the word of God setting it out. Because that's the life I live in. I don't know about you. We who live along the stream of time rarely get to understand anything of what the rocks and the ripples along the way might mean. A small example I've told, I think, before of the first time I went skiing. On a school trip when I was 13, I broke my leg after one hour on the slopes. No one on that trip, not even the most faith-filled Christian, would have been able to say, oh, well, never mind, I'm sure it's all for the best. I would have wanted to punch anyone who said it. Because being in a French-speaking hospital for a week when you're 13 and speak barely any French and they do the most appalling things to you that only French-speaking people seem to want to do in hospital, it is a terrible experience even when well-meaning French Christians come and visit you at Easter time and say almost nothing you can understand. But had I not spent that time, I wouldn't have picked up even a little French or a reasonable French accent so that French was an easy call for me at A-level And it was easy for me later on to take a job in a French-speaking city and meet Natalie so that I can say, Isabel and David would not be here unless I'd broken my leg. It's fine and dandy to look back and sound all smug and God is in charge-ish. But it doesn't look that way at the time. All we can say then is that there's time to break a leg and a time for it to get better but who knows what it will mean when the lights of eternity go on. And I find that consoling. I don't have to pretend to those going through it 
whether that's those of us here with our problems or those in Haiti. I don't have to pretend that I can trace now the bigger purpose, the finer line, the better hope to be found in what is manifestly utter disaster. But because God, according to verse 11 of chapter 3, has set eternity in my heart, I at least know what it is that frustrates me. It's not enough for me to know that blandly there is a time for this and a time for that. I am aware of the frustrations in the universe that make meaning a problem. I'm driven to ask the questions and seek the answers to that problem. Yes, part of the answer is to be found in the short-term satisfactions, to be found in the gifts of God, eating, drinking, my work, my skiing. But where can I look for the longer term? There's only one place in the New Testament that picks up the thought of Ecclesiastes, and it's in Romans 8. Please turn to Romans, to chapter 8, and uh, well, page 1135. We'll begin at verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And that word frustration in verse 20 is the translation into Greek of the word meaningless in Ecclesiastes. Paul knows very precisely what he's doing. He is saying, yes, Ecclesiastes truly identifies the problem, that it all looks meaningless. But if there's going to be an answer, it has to be one that takes into account all that Ecclesiastes had to say. The entire creation looks like this. The whole lot is meaningless. The work the, the eating and drinking, the, finding, the whole lot is meaningless unless you can find an answer that looks for a, a, a whole cosmos to be changed. And that's going to happen, he says, because the creation itself will be brought into the freedom of the children of God. And so these internal sections of Ecclesiastes leave us with a choice. The data are alarmingly obvious to us. Dreadful stuff happens, nice stuff happens, but we can't even say whether they're good or bad. Because it all seems so meaningless so often and we don't know what the outcomes will be. Bad from good, good from bad. You either have or have been a teenager and uh, you maybe encounter the teenager who is slumped moodily and saying, whatever, And that teenager is profoundly close to the teacher's wisdom. There are the data of life. But whatever. So how will we then react to it all? We can either choose despair, as the teacher seems to, it's all meaningless. 
Or we can reflect that perhaps because there is eternity set in our hearts, there is perhaps a hope. It would be just whistling in the wind to think that if we never heard of a hope that made sense or what that hope could be like. But we are in a position to give that hope a name and a title, Jesus the Christ. Not naively, not in such a way as to deny that bad stuff happens, but in such a way as to find these themes taken up and given the very meaning that they lack. There is a time to be born and a time to die, and it's all meaningless, except that because he was born and because he died, there is meaning. A time to be silent and a time to speak, it's all meaningless, except that because he was silent like a lamb at his death and spoke to his followers after his resurrection, there is meaning. A time for war and a time for peace, all meaningless, except that because he made war on Satan and brought peace with God, there is meaning. There is a bookend quality to Ecclesiastes, and we need those bookends to make full sense of it. And when we're in the middle of the book for a while, we will struggle a little. But even in these internal passages like we've had tonight, this much is clear. Life, let's be honest, is a wretchedly frustrating puzzle. And it does not matter if you've got all the wealth to buy all the Swiss watches in Zermatt. My battery broke, and I just didn't have the courage to ask them to replace a Timex battery. We are not like animals who don't notice the puzzle. Neither are we like gods who understand it all. We are placed part way with questions that need answers. And that may be you tonight. Well, welcome to reality. Faith does not answer every question. Indeed, it makes some questions painfully sharper than they were in the first place. But faith lives knowing who holds the answer, because he is called Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. The only one who can hold an answer is one who can look at this stuff clear-eyed, look at chapter 3, and say, I have given all of those phases meaning. Lord God, it is our hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Not a hope far off, not a hope indistinct, but a hope that is made certain in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is a day to which we look forward. It is not here in its fullness. For now, we and those we care for, whether close at home or thousands of miles away, know only the frustration of questions that do not seem to have answers. Where wisdom fails, give us grace to acknowledge the Son of God. Amen.